Hi, I'm Kosha. And I'm Shaylushi. And we're sisters and the co-hosts of the podcast, I Am Speaking with Shaylushi and Kosha. This podcast focuses on sharing and amplifying the voices of people who have felt othered. We've had the chance to hear so many amazing stories. And during season two, one of our running jokes together was that once VP Kamala Harris heard about this podcast, she was definitely going to call us to be a guest, but that we would have to turn her down because her story didn't fit with our theme for that season. But that joke was really the seed for this series. I am speaking with expert voices, an arm of our original and still ongoing podcast. We're excited to share with you the stories and expertise of people who are at the forefront of their fields. And Madam Vice President, with the launch of I Am Speaking with Expert Voices, we are now ready for you to join us at any time. I think that was good, right? Hello, I Am Speaking listeners. Welcome to episode two of the birthday series of surprise guests. As you might know, Shailushi's birthday is April 30th. I am bringing on surprise guests all month. Um, This also means I'm doing the intro solo because um, I just wanted to preserve the the fun and the joy that you hear when she finds out um, who the guest is. But this week, we turn the tables on her a little. I turn the tables on her a little bit. It is my best friend from high school, Emily Bleeker. She, if you want to do one of those like SAT logic problems, Beth is to Shailushi, who Emily is to Kosha. So we met when we were 15. We have been through the trenches and the high highs and the low lows together. She's still one of my dearest friends now, 25 years later, 27 years later. And uh, even though we, you know, life is taking us, has taken us in different directions, um, we always come back and we seem to be on the same page. Um, No pun intended, given that Emily Bleeker is a best-selling author, she's a novelist, and she tells us how she got into writing. She actually was told that she wouldn't be a good writer because her her handwriting was so terrible. And although, yes, it is terrible, um, the imagination really of this woman is incredible. I, I very, very much encourage you to read her books. She, her books are all over Amazon. Um, the first book is Wreckage. Second book is When I'm Gone. And Working Fire is her third book. If you have not read any of her books, those will get you started. And then this episode will make you want to read even more. Um, this woman is lovely. She and Shayla should get along like gangbusters. They're both extroverts. They both you know, really care. They have very, very similar values. They care about a lot of the same things. And I know she really loves Emily and actually wants to go out clubbing with her one of these days. So uh, was one of the reasons I brought her on. Um, enjoy this episode, birthday, surprise month episode with Miss Emily Bleeker. Okay. Hello. Um, so I would say that the first episode of what 
Do you want me to cover my eyes? No, not yet. Oh, not yet. Okay. Not yet. I would say that the first episode of the April birthday series went very well. What oh, it was say? awesome. It was, well, it was awesome, but uh, not, but it was great that uh, it was someone who I, I mean, Beth and I have been best friends since we were 15 years old. And even though we don't necessarily, we're not in touch like every week or every month, it's our friendship is a kind of friendship, which is like, whenever we get together, it's just immediately comfortable. You know, there's, there's no lag time in being comfortable. We're not like, Oh, and how's your mom or whatever. It's like, I've known Beth since I was 11. Right. So when you met her and she's always been that person, yeah, she's always been this person that's really honest, really big, really open. Like I, I, you know, we didn't talk about her, her, the loss of her husband or her mom, but she was really open about what, what she's been through. And that was part of her advice. So, all right, you ready for episode two? I guess so. Okay. This will be fun. I think I, okay. this, you, you're not going to guess this one. So I'm not even going to okay. go through the like, oh, what do you think? And what about this? So <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Know. Close your eyes. Okay. And okay. I'm letting the person in. Hold on. Oh, crap. Crap. Okay. Okay. How, how hard is it to let the person in? Wait, I think they left for some reason. Oh, can I okay. uncover? Yeah. My eyes? Uncover your eyes. Uncover. Ready? Okay. Cover your yes. eyes now. Okay. Covering okay. my eyes. All right. Unmute yourself. You unmute Me? yourself. No, not you, Shulshi. Okay, okay. This the person. guest. Okay. Okay, ready? Okay. One, two, three. Hi. You are quiet. Can you turn yourself Very up? Very quiet. quiet? Oh. All right. Hold on. I oh, oh, that's, that's way much better. better. That's much better. I don't know what you did. Hi. <laughs> Hi. You're right, Kosha. If Emily was in my kitchen. Showed up in my kitchen. I have a great time talking to her. Yes. We're talking about the people who I would invite to be a surprise. And it's like, I'm not going to invite, she was like Cecilia Richards or Kamala Harris. And I'm like, no, I will give you time to prep for someone like that. But, it, and they also have to have something to talk about, right? Like someone that you don't have to prep for, you could just chat. Um, I did say this is a little bit of a cheat because Emily, well, what, why don't we say who this person is? <laughs> I keep forgetting Hi, that our, pie, our our listeners don't um, can't see you. So this is actually one of my best friends in the whole world. It is the it is the Beth Guerra to Kosha, which is yes, someone from high school we met when we were fifteen, and she is one of my best friends, Emily Bleeker. Hi, hi, the worth. The world-renowned author as yes, well. Yes, exactly. And mega mom, you know. But Shayla, she and Emily have met several times over the years. And toward the beginning of the podcast, we did a couple like intro practice runs. Practice runs, and yeah. And Emily was on one of our rehearsals. And Shayla, she and Emily were like, oh my, are we the same? Like there was yeah. a lot of <laughs> right. extroverted similarities. And I think um, you're going to go out and club without me one of these days yeah we are totally i mean you hate clubs coach yeah that's what i was gonna say i'm not <laughs> i'm not mad about it i'm actually totally fine about it. so hi emily welcome hi I'm hi so glad you guys can hear me now yay <laughs> what's also uh amusing to me that you're right you're on right after beth is that last time i saw beth 
And Koshi, you probably were the person that introduced Beth to Emily's work. I did, yes. Emily, I was talking about you and oh. she's like, oh my God, Emily Bleeker, the person who wrote these books. And I was like, yeah, she's like Koshi's best friend. Like, oh my God, I'll pay you to get autographed copies for me. And I was like, I don't think you have to pay me. I think if we can just <laughs> no. make it happen, like yeah. calm yourself down there. It's like, if Kosha needs help with a vet issue, there's not going to be some sort of like finder's fee or like <laughs> right. whatever. Like it was just so weird. So she funny. was like, she's a huge fan. She like does not remember that I, cause she was, she was like looking for beach reads. Like she was going on one of her very few vacations and she had posted something. I was like, oh, my best friend uh, for high school is an author. She, the, the books are very intriguing. There's always a twist, but they are easy, right? Like quote unquote, they, they flow and you can get really involved, but you don't have to do a lot of like math when you're reading. I do not have math in my books. You are exactly <laughs> right. Exactly, exactly. So, and she was like, oh, great. I'll pick up wreckage. And then suddenly like, she's a super fan of yours. Yeah. And she has forgotten like, <laughs> that I was the one who was like, hey, this is my best friend. And I think you were like, yeah, she is like, Kosha's best friend, like you're mine. Like they go way back and stuff. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. It was, it was funny too. Cause she was like, <gasps> and then she was like super fanned on me. And I was like, oh my God, just relax. Like <laughs> it's just a person just so you know. I mean, she's an awesome person, but yeah, no, absolutely. Emily is a very awesome person, but also I think it's easy to sort of like pedestal people when you know of them and you have a lot of respect for their work or what they do or who they are. And then you forget that like, they're actually just a person, right? Yeah. It's a good thing to remember. It's actually something that's been humbling for me as I've gone through this whole author journey, just to, you know, I've met people who I've known just their names before. And then I've met them as people and I'm like, oh, you're people too. You know, <laughs> yeah. you're people. Too. That's right. I'm a people. I'm a people. We're all a people. <laughs> yeah. They say something like, like, um, never meet your heroes. Right. right. Because it's always disappointing, but I'm like, actually, I, I want that. Like, I'm just maybe a different kind of people, but, um, I actually want to know that someone who I look up to is also human and has flaws and can, you know, fuck up and yeah. And stuff right. like that. So I like yeah. reality. I will take the ugliest truth over the prettiest lie, you know? I feel like I, I have to admit, like, generally, I like that idea, but I think there are people who I look up to. And if I found out, for example, if they're racist, I would be like, oh, <laughs> like, that's the kind of stuff where I'm like, I don't care if you're like, I, I got a 700 on my SATs or like, <laughs> you know, I'm the kind of person that leaves cups all over the house. Like that kind of stuff <laughs> is like one thing, but to find out that someone is like completely unaligned with my values, that would be really crushing for You're me. You're like, be racist. Just don't tell me about it. Right. Is that what I'm hearing? That's the, <laughs> remember how we used to do that in like the seventies and eighties and early nineties, yeah. where we just said, no, we're not racist anymore. This is a post-racial society. And then we just pretended like it wasn't happening. How about yeah, if we just, that worked out really well for all of us. I feel like, <laughs> except for maybe the people who are having racist practices perpetrated on perpetrated them, but, on them, but at least we could all maintain our sense of like, 
la la land. Right? Yeah. No it's cognitive funny. dissonance at least, yeah. you know, so thank goodness we have that. Do you find that people, when you um, are on your book tours, or you're doing book signing or whatever, do you have people that like fan, like fan girl or fan boy out at you? And they're like, oh. has anyone ever started crying when they met you? No one's ever started crying, but I've definitely had the, the fan person moment, which has been, it, it is a little stunning. And in those moments I am like, Hey, I'm just, I'm just a person too. Like, let's, let's be friends, you know, but not two friends because they, they take it seriously. If you say to a fan, let's be friends. They're like, I will call you tomorrow and I will call <laughs> you the next day and we will be best friends forever. But, but seriously, it's my, one of my favorite parts of being an author is connecting with my readers. And it is mind blowing to me, the amount of people who connect with my writing, like it, it is seriously humbling and it makes me, I, I really thought maybe 10 people would be like, yeah, that's okay. You know? So now that that's shown to be, you know, more, more than, than 10, 10 people. Yeah. It, it really is. It's a beautiful thing. And I feel this deep connection with them. I'm like, you guys have lived inside of my brain, you know, because that's where this all came from. You know, one thing I do often say is you like, you know, I wrote that sitting on my couch, right? Like, but <laughs> it is beautiful. And Stephen King talks about that, how writing is this amazing, amazing thing. It's like, uh, it's magic. You can, you know, transport somebody from a different world or a different country or, you know, from miles and miles away, and you can transport them into the same place that your brain just was and created. And I do love that. It, it is mind blowing to me, but I, I love that that exists, not just my own writing, but that it, in general, it exists. Yeah. I recently, uh, rediscovered my love for Agatha Christie novels uh, and, and there was, again, it was the same thing where I was like, first of all, being transported to the 1920s and 1930s, I'm like, mm. <laughs> like, you know, they're traveling through like Egypt and they're like calling people like the language is like coloreds and like foreigners, like all, all this language that was actually appropriate, like a hundred years ago. Right? right. Like that's how people talked, but sort of to lose myself in the story and be like, what's going to happen next is so amazing. It is. Well, and I think also like emotionally that people, you know, people have fully have crushes on fictional characters and yeah. are so, I mean, I, and I won't give away the story for any of your books because, you know, there are you still want people a, to read them. Yeah. Yes. There are a few people out there who haven't read them. A few. One or two, maybe 10, <laughs> maybe 10. But there was, there's one book where you actually reached out to, I was like, oh, I'm almost at the end. And you're like, you're going to hate the end of this book. <laughs> you know which yeah. one I'm talking about, right? Uh -huh. And I got to the end of the book and I was mad yeah. at oh, the person. And I was mad at you. I was like, <laughs> why would yeah. you do this to me? Have you had that with people being like, that's totally not what that person would have done? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> All the time. They think they know what XYZ character would do. And you're like, mm, I wrote it. So well, I actually, what I say usually in those moments is you get to decide what happens after I wrote the end. So maybe your version of that character in your mind made totally different decisions after that you closed that book and you've decided this what is what happens next. And that's valid. 
Like I find that experience for you as a reader valid, if that's what you have decided comes next. And, you know, there is this belief. And I, I think it's so true that writing is like the purest form of empathy. Really it's reading also, because you get to actually live in somebody else's world and their life, in their experiences, you experience their pains and their sorrows. And a lot of times I saw, especially with my first book, Wreckage, you know, there were some controversial topics in there. And um, people said like, oh, well, I started off thinking I would never make the same decisions as these characters, but by the end of the book, I wasn't so sure. And that's the whole point and power of literature is you get to, to see from somebody else's point of view and it can be incredibly powerful and like not necessarily my books, but books in general can be life-changing because of that, you know? So, so that's why I like them to own the experience to really say, okay, like this is the understanding I had of that character. And I think that's what comes at the end of this book or comes after the end of this book until I write a sequel and tell you you're wrong. So, <laughs> Well, you know, that's interesting. Cause I know with uh, what's that, uh, it was a movie and then it was Scarlett O'Hara, Oh, Gone, Gone with, with the Wind. wind. Yeah, thank you. Gone with the, I was trying, I wanted to say Grapes of Wrath, but I was like, that is wrong. <laughs> There's <laughs> also like, a movie from that book. There are G's and W's. Gone with the Wind and Grapes of Wrath. It makes sense. <laughs> but uh, then the, the sequel movie came out called Scarlet and people were angry because they're like, that's not what happened after that right. story ended. Well, that was such a weird, so Gone with the Wind, I actually love as a book, which is so funny because my son recently was just like, um, he is way into classic literature, which I always have been. I have a minor in, in literature. And so he's been really reading a lot of these books. And I was like, well, you should read Gone with the Wind because I have like a, an antique version of it that I keep on um, right by the front door. And he's like, well, I can't read that because it's racist. I'm like, yeah, it's very racist. I'm like, but it's racist in a way that lets you see what racism, racism actually was in that time period. And I actually think it's not a great book because you're like rah, rah racism. It actually makes you be like, Ooh, wow. Racism was disgusting and gross and real in that time. You know, it's like seeing, seeing from that point of view is really very, very interesting to me, but, but I'm sure, you know, the story behind Scarlet, you know, so uh, Margaret Mitchell who wrote Gump the when she, she died fairly young. And so that was the only book she wrote. She actually wrote a small no- novella before that, but then Gone with the Wind was the only book that she ever actually wrote. And it was this major success, you know, but then they didn't have a sequel. So they had a contest where people turned in uh... their and that's how Scarlet ended up becoming the designated sequel for Gone with the Wind. I think it was in the 80s. I'm not exactly sure the timing of it. It was, it was way recent. It was, it, it, it was a very weird story. I agree. I don't think that's what actually happened. But, you know, I like fan fiction. Yeah, right. <laughs> it, it only gets weird when they say this is definitely what happened next, you know? Well, I, it's interesting that your son was like, well, I can't read that. It's racist. And I was like... You know, I just think how much classic literature would we not read because it doesn't match up with our current social values, right? right? And that's part of what's happening on a broad scale in the U.S., all these fights over what books are going to be in libraries and, you know, all of this stuff. But I just think like one of my favorite books, To Kill a Mockingbird, also 
depicts very accurate racism of the day in the South. And yet it's so important to like to read, to it's sort of understand. To call it out. So To Kill a Mockingbird at least is saying, framing racism in a negative way. So I understand his hesitation and other people's hesitation with Gone with the Wind because it is written from a Confederate point of view. But I think that if it's read and then talked about you know, properly, that it actually can be a great teaching tool and help really like, there is nothing that makes, uh, makes slavery look good in Gone with the Wind to me. I read that and I was like, wow, that was like, I already knew slavery was bad, but like it really even opened my eyes even more so. And so I don't know, I, I'm sure people would argue that, that there is no usefulness for that. But for, for me, I found it incredibly insightful. And I think that as long as you're reading it from a proper vantage point, that you're going to see those things. And all it's going to do is empower you and make you want to, you know, do better. That's a, that's a really great point. I mean, just this idea that like people can apply a critical lens to what they're reading. Right and say, okay, what does this telling me about what it's like to be a black person in the United States and like the roots of what, what it has been, right? What, what black Americans have been up against their entire lives since the moment they, you know, the, from the generation they landed here until now. And this is a part, this is a part of it um, to understand that experience, not necessarily to be like, yeah, and this is great. Like don't read it as propaganda. Right. And I know that when I've been through hard things, the one I would love it if people could recognize, just say, hey, those hard things were hard, you know, and like those that that happened, it would be really hard for me if those bad things were washed away completely, I feel like, you know, like from history, as though they didn't even happen, you know, so I don't know, it was it was it was an interesting conversation. I don't know if he'll read it or not. Like, but I do see some value in it as long as, like I said, as long as it's done with a, yeah. a critical yeah. vantage point, mm-hmm. you know, especially for like, my kids are white. Like, I think they need to look through, look at things critical from the past and be able to say that those were not good things that were, that were done properly. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> well, let's talk, let's start. Well, let's, zoom out a little bit and talk a little (laughs) bit about how you even got here right yeah so uh Emily and I met when we were 15 like we said earlier and I always knew you to be like a theater person like a singer theater uh wanted to be on stage um walk us through a little bit about how you got into writing yeah yeah so I actually never thought I was a writer um I when I was younger, so I've always had terrible handwriting and I, I can attest to this. Yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you do. You can. Terrible, terrible handwriting, still not great. Um, my spelling has always been incredibly weak, you know, but I've had an, a like on fire imagination for my whole entire life, but I didn't know that that could translate into writing. Like I thought that writing was just like, you're a good writer. Um, and the first thing that you write is the perfect thing and it's beautiful. And that is exactly what will be published. And so there was no part of me that thought that I would be a writer. So I, in fact, I thought that I would try and be an English teacher, but then um, convinced myself that I couldn't do that either, you know, because of my shortcomings when it came to 
spelling and oh, writing. I see. So I ended up becoming an, uh, a kindergarten teacher. And then I also taught academically talented and gifted classes um, through for third, fourth and fifth graders. And I wrote the curriculum for our district for the academically talented program up through um, that age. So I, I enjoyed that. But one of the classes I would teach was a writing class. And so I would have the kids write. I learned about like writers workshop. And so I started doing it alongside them. So I enjoyed it a lot. And I started writing um, secretly in the dark of night um, in uh, this Jane Austen fan fiction group. And I wrote, I know it's a thing. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that, right? It gets you started. Why not? Yeah. I can say there's nothing wrong with it now. Back then I was very, I'm still embarrassed by it. I'll, I'll admit it. I've gone back and found it. It's under a different name. So you <laughs> shall never find it probably. But I went back and read it and I'm like, oh, this is so bad. Like, this is so, so bad. Was it cringe? Oh, as the kids so say much. nowadays. So cringe, <laughs> yes. Um, but I feel like me saying it's so cringe is also cringy. Yeah, so. yeah. No, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but we both have kids around the same age. And so I yeah. say that just to elicit that reaction from my that's older so kids. Just to get them to cringe. Just to get them to cringe. Yeah. That's really funny. If I really like, want to, if I really want to make them cringe, I throw neat as well. <laughs> I still don't understand what eat. Yes. Yeah, like really throwing, like just like chucking something, but it's not actually a cool term anymore. It's like oh. not the term. So then it's like, not only is it cringe because of me saying cringe, but then I'm also using an outdated term of yeet. And it's just like, oh no. I'm sorry to interrupt about yeet and no, cringe. No. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I I don't know. My kids thankfully are not embarrassed by me. They do like laughing at me a lot, but I I think they know that I'm not even going to try and be cool. So I'm just going to be whatever I am, and they'll probably have some level of embarrassment at it. But nobody yet has been like, "Mom, you're embarrassing." So I like how you said yet. <laughs> yet. I don't know. I think my older kids think that they, they think I'm cool. My older kids do. If you're listening, um, please <laughs> just let me believe this. Like just keep on. Yeah, that's this. right. Um, my daughter will probably be the one who will be like, Oh mom, you know, but. <laughs> and right now is too young. And actually does think you're cool right now. Yeah. The only time, you know, I know I'm getting off of what you're talking about, but we'll pick up Jane, Jane Austen. Yeah. We'll pick it up. Don't worry. The only time she's I've noticed an extreme embarrassment is when we'll drive up to school and we blast um, show tunes on the way to school and we sing together. And whenever we get up close to school, she's like, oh, we're just going to turn that down and let's, <laughs> let's not sing. And I was like, what? People want to hear our fantastic performance. So, and she's like, I don't want them to hear your fantastic performance. <laughs> I just want to keep that for myself. Yeah, that's very special. <laughs> just between the just two. For me. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, Betsy is, she does think I'm cool for the most part. Yeah. Or at least like she wants to be around me. And I have said something like, she'll give me hugs and kisses. And I'll be like, there might be a time where you don't want to give me hugs and kisses all the time. And she has said stuff like, oh, mama, no, I, I will always love you. I always want to give you hugs and kisses. And I was like, will you sign a document, a legal document? <laughs> and, but the other one is like, I do a lot of like crazy songs and dances and there's stuff where I'll be like, I'll just do this song in front of your, in front of your friends. And she's like, do not do that. <laughs> and then like all last year I'd pick her up from school 
And I had this routine where I'd be like, hi, my name is mommy. Like, what's your name? And she <laughs> was mortified. <laughs> and she at first was like, mama. And then finally she just like walk like two steps in front of me. Like I'm not, I don't know who this crazy woman is. That's so funny. They'll, they'll tell those stories affectionately one day, I think, or they'll tell them to their therapist and they'll be like, yes, now we understand why you are the way you are. Do you need antipsychotics? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It will be for good or for not good. We just don't know yet. You can never know. All right. So back to Jane Austen fan fiction. Jane Austen. I'm, I'm glad to see you did not forget that. So, so that was like when I was in my early twenties. Um, and then I, so I always, I always say it was like my dirty little secret. Cause I just continued to write, you know, um, just on my own for fun. I would say it was for fun, but I've actually found that when the way, you know, you're a writer is when you have stories that build up inside of you so much so that they feel like they're going to spill out and you have to write them down, you know? So that feeling compelled to write those things down, that's when I, uh, I couldn't, I had no other choice. Like it, it did feel like I just needed to get some stories out. And so I did, but it was not something I shared with anybody. I, that's not true. Strangers on the internet read stuff that I put on, but that was about it. The people in your Jane Austen fan fiction group. Yeah. And they gave feedback too, that I still remember to this day, like to this day, like at one point I had one of the characters say, okay. And they're like, that just sucked me right out of the time period. And I was like, and I still remember that where I'm like, oh gosh, I got to be careful about that. And so I was writing stuff like that. So then I started having kids and I had my first child and, um, and then I had a lump in my leg. And the lump I just thought was like a pulled muscle or something like that. Then I went to go get it tested and they did a scan. But after the scan, I found out I was pregnant with my second child. And um, at the same exact time, I found out that it, it was a mass that could potentially be cancer. So I, I, they decided to just wait because another specialist said that it was a benign, a benign tumor. And so I decided to wait and then to do anything about it until after my son was born. Um, But when he was three months old, I had it removed and it ended up, it was cancer, a soft tissue sarcoma. And I I will just cut in here, very similar to Shayla Shea's situation in that it is a very, very rare cancer that couldn't even give you like a prognosis because not enough people in the country or in the world have it to be able to tell what prognoses it might have. So that is really similar to what Shayla yeah. went through. So, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was very rare. It is, um, you know, it's synovial sarcoma and it, it had, they did give me a prognosis. They told me that I had a 30% chance of turning 30, you know, which was a bit shocking. You know, I had just we were had 26, a we were 26 when that happened. Yes. I had just turned, I think I was 25 when I had the surgery. And then I turned 26 very, very shortly after, because it was in May that I had the surgery right before you got married. Right. And then, um, and then I turned 26 in July. So I was 25. I had a three month old baby. I had a 18 month old baby, you know, like I had two little babies 
And, um, and they were told me that, you know, I had a 30% chance of turning 30 uh, because that's five years out, you know? And uh, that was, I mean, a little shocking. Uh, It was something I had never considered being like my path in life. I had just been going along do to do like, let's have babies. Let's, you know, enjoy all of these things. And it definitely was one of those moments that makes you just kind of slow down and stop. And I remember the day that I got the diagnosis, I, I had left Brandon at home and, um, well, I left both of my kids at home, but I came home and Brandon needed to nurse. And I was upstairs nursing him in a rocking chair. And I remember just being like, what, what will, if I live to be 30, like, let's say I don't, what, if I don't live to be 30, what will these kids remember of me? You know? Like, will, like, will they remember what I look like? Will they remember my voice? Will they remember these things that I've done with them? Will they even know that I held them in my arms and that I fed them with my body that I did all of these things, you know? So, so that was a definitely a very difficult moment, but, um, spoiler alert, I survived. So, um, I am not 30 now. You are I'm- not 30 in perpetuity. I'm not, I'm 41, but so I got treatment and I did all of my checkups and I've stayed healthy and I, and at 30, I, this has to do with my writing story because at 30, I decided to make some goals for my um, thirties because I'm like, all right, I made it like I am cancer free. I am considered cured at this point you know, and this is time that has just been given back to me is like this present just like wrapped up to me. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have had a hundred years ago. I would have been dead. Like 100% I would have been dead. And so I made these goals and, um, like some of my goals were like, um, I, when I got cancer, they told me you'll never run again, you know, cause it was in my leg. And I was like, (laughs) I never did run. So cool. No problem. (laughs) That's totally fine. Yeah. 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 (laughs) You know, but like some stubborn part of me just got like flared up. And when they told me I would never run again, and I was like, well, I'm going to start running. So I started running and my goal was just to make a 5k. And I ended up now I run every single day, you know? So like, it took a while to get there, but, um, like I wanted to learn a new instrument. So I learned guitar. I wanted to start theater again. So I started improv. And then my other, one of them was that I wanted to finish a manuscript. And I said, I would, I, I would say it like this. I want to finish a manuscript, but I'll never try and get it published. That's how I'd say it, you know? And um, so when I turned 30, that was my goal. I had another baby. Uh, I, had a, I had a couple of babies in there. I have four of them all together. But the last baby that I had, uh, my daughter, when I had her, I started this working on a new manuscript that had nothing to do with Jane Austen. And, um, I would write it one handed while I was nursing her. Cause it's the only time with three little boys and that I could sit down, you know, ever. And so I would nurse her and then write on with one hand on one side and then, you know, flip it over to the other. So, um, so it took three years. I did not nurse her the whole time, um, <laughs> but you probably didn't sit down for three years either. Right. And I, I got a good start at least through her, you know, baby years. It took three years, but I had a finished, finished manuscript and that was wreckage. And at that point I was like, well, great. 
done. I did it. Did it. Reached my goal. Yeah. Then I made the mistake of letting people read it. (laughs) Uh, Like I just let one of my friends read it. And, um, she was like, this is good. You should try and get this published. And I was like, you really think so? She's like, yeah, I couldn't put it down. And then my sister read it and she's like, you should try and get this published. And, um, so then I Googled how to get published. And I always say the internet laughed at me because they were like, you silly little thing. You can't just like call up a publisher and be like, Hey, publish my book, you know? Yeah. So then I learned about that process. And that's when I entered a, another writing community online, like writing on my online writing communities have been incredibly important for me in this whole process. So, so anyway, that, that gets you up to the point where I finally, I finally was like, am I a writer? <laughs> like maybe I'm a writer. <laughs> so it took writing a whole manuscript and getting all the way up to that point that I'm like, yeah, I, I guess I'm a writer. I still won't tell anybody I'm a writer, but I guess I am. Yeah. That's so cool. Especially not so much that you doubted that you're a writer, but more the evolution, no, the real evolution of both your, your work and your identity right? Yeah. That it was sort of co-evolution and you go, oh, I'm just doing this. And then when you do it, you're like, oh, maybe I'm the person that does this. Right. I also, I absolutely resonate, you know, I resonate with these. You're like, well, I wasn't supposed to make it this far. So it's time that I was never promised, um, which is weird because we're never promised any time anyway. Right. That's a good point. You know, my favorite things to say to myself whenever I'm feeling like, well, that's not fair. Man makes plans and God laughs. We all think we can make a plan. We all think we have time. We're all like, oh, I'm going to do next week and next year. And who the hell knows what's going to happen next minute. My writer's brain hates that because I think about it all the time. Like every time my kids leave my car to go anywhere, like if I'm dropping them off at school or off at their dad's house or wherever I make them, I say, look me in the eyes because I want them to have that last moment of us connecting. So no matter what happens, it's so terrible, but no matter no, what, I get it. We have, that I moment. get it. Even like how much we, we travel a lot you know, my family and, um, every time the, the plane takes off and we've done it a thousand times. Right. But every time the plane takes off, I make, we do it. We, it's not like I make them, but like we hold each other's hands and we say, I love you to each other as the plane is taking off because we don't know. We, I have a pretty good idea that this plane is plane is going to land where we need it to be, but you're not prom you're not promised that landing. No, no, you're not promised anything. Exactly. Exactly. Just so great that you like took that opportunity and you're like, well, what do I want to do with my life? Right. Cause I think people can go one of two directions. People can either sort of shrink back into safety and say, look, I made it through this and I'm just going to try and keep my head down and, and make it through. Or you just get, you know, you sort of live more outrageously and you go, well, what have I got to lose? Like I almost actually had everything to lose. So I might as well just do what I want. Right. Well, I was being safe and cautious and good. And not that any, that writing a book is not cautious, but you know, like, you know, living my life in such a measured way. And it's like, and I still almost died doing that, you know? So, Mm -hmm. um, these risks are really mostly just risks, uh, 
of our ego, you know? So when we're taking chances, especially in a creative forum, we are only risking the pain of failure or of perceived failure or and rejection, me, right? Somewhere or rejection. Yeah. But to me, it's become something where I'm like, I'm willing to feel that in order to have the successes that come on the other side of that pain and that rejection, you know, like it still doesn't make it easy. You still feel it and it doesn't feel great. But what I have thankfully learned is on the other side of it, there are really great things and it might not look like the great thing that you think you have, were going to get or that you deserve, but there's still really amazing things on the other side of that. So. Yeah, absolutely. I think once, once you sort of feel like, okay, well, I have snatched myself back from the jaws of death, uh-huh, I've somehow uh-huh, managed uh-huh. to skirt that, <laughs> uh, then you go, well. I want to be with my experience, whatever my experience is. Right. There are a lot of people who have lifestyles that can contribute to health problems. And then there are health problems that come out of nowhere. Right. And you and I had the same experiences. It's like, it's not genetic. It has no lifestyle factors. There's nothing about it that's predictable. It just happens. And when something like that just happens and you met, you know, you can make it through the other side healthy, you go, okay, well, there's no promise tomorrow. Right. So before, before, you know, my diagnosis, I was like, yeah, well, we're saving till retirement and then we'll travel. And that, and then I'm like, oh, well, maybe, maybe I won't get there. I almost didn't get there. Right. Um, I don't want to wait anymore. Yes. Yeah. That's what it was so hard about the pandemic is I was like, oh my gosh, guys, like I want to do stuff. I want to live. Like, I don't want to just stay inside, you know, but, um, but it is. And that does feel extra, I think, painful when you have a full understanding that this not, no time is promised to you. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, when Beth was on last week, she's widowed. So her husband, died at 46 of liver cancer. Yeah. It's very similar. Some random hard to treat. It's so rare that nobody really knows what's going on. And he, you know, she talked about, he was that person who's like, we'll just wait until retirement or let's not waste that. Like she's sitting on bottles and bottles of wine that were supposed to be for anniversaries and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, now all of these bottles of wine have this emotional baggage. I can't just pop it open on a Tuesday because it's Nate's wine that he was waiting for X, Y, Z. Did you find that you did stop wait, quote, waiting for, for things to happen or waiting for retirement or waiting for an anniversary or a birthday? Did that actually change for you or I think it has changed over time. I don't think that there, I think that so many growth moments or we, we look at it like movies or even books as a sudden epiphany. Mine was more like a sunrise, you know, it was this gradual understanding, this gradual uh, restructuring of my belief system and the way that I understood how life worked. And, you know, and the greatest thing is that instead of closing my curtains and ignoring it, uh, by letting myself actually experience that, um, awakening, it has made a huge difference where I am in a place where I am able to, you know, enjoy those things that maybe I would have held back from in the past. So, but it definitely, I mean, it's, it's, um, 
I've been, well, I haven't been 30. Well, I was going to say I've been 30 for 11 years, but no, I've been <laughs> in your mind. You've been 30 for 11 in years. perpetuity, right? It's been almost 12 years since my 30th birthday. When I made all of those goals, I've, I reached all of the goals that I made for my thirties and I made some new ones for my forties, you know? And I think that all that it has done is just shown me like, like just to make those big goals and to go for it. Like that there is really no harm in, I mean, there is a harm, I guess, if you go for it and you don't have a scaffolding beneath you, if you aren't doing it in a proper or, or a well thought out way. But I think that if you do that and you're getting back up after you fall down every single time that you're just going to get stronger, you know, like I like talking about, um, I gave a, a, a talk a couple of years ago where we talked about that bear hunt song. I don't know if you've ever heard the one like, you know, I'm going on a bear hunt and you know, the whole, that really defines kind of how I look at it, where it's like, um, in that song, they're always like, look, there's a tree or look, there's a lake. That's the best one. You know, can't go over it. Can't go under it. You've got to go through it. All of these things, we, we just got to go through it, get to the other side. There'll be another obstacle. We got to go through it. We got to find you know, and then we'll end up at our destination, wherever that needs to be. So I think that's what cancer taught me. It, it taught me just keep going wherever that end is. Cause some people aren't as lucky as we have been with their cancer journey. And sometimes the just going through it, you know, doesn't end them in a place where they joyfully get to say, Hey, look at all these years I have back. Yeah. Well, it's not only that, right? Some people get back years and they get back a different quality of years. Yes. Very right. much I think so. there's, there's also, there's the living and then there's the ability to be alive. Yeah. Right. So I just think about for me, like if I, I value, it's such a, it's such a like important to who I am and my ability to like be a psychologically sane person that I need to be able to work out. I need to be able to sweat. And it, you know, if I couldn't do that, it would be a much more parsed experience to be like, well, yes, but this, and this is hard you know, generally the things for us that are, you know, if I can speak for you a little bit, is like the hard stuff is more like, well, I got a scar here or whatever. It's like, it doesn't really affect day-to-day or long-term functioning. You know, you're still healthy. You're, you're not going to be able to run again, you know, as the doctor said, and you're running, right? You're doing all the things that you were said that, you know, we're never going to be able to do that. And you went and did it, but some people they survive and they can't, and they can do less than they used to. I mean, that's heartbreaking. I never had to think about that. I never had to think about what the balance is. I'm fine. Right. Right. And I do think that we go through uh, hard things, you know, cancer, loss, all of these things, thinking that I can't live on the other side of this if it looks a different way than I'm used to. But I actually think that that's part of resiliency is you do find a way on the other side my motto that my life motto, when I was online dating, they wanted you to have a life motto. And mine came from a, you know, a fortune cookie. (laughs) And it was a fall down seven times, get up eight. So, and that's kind of my little life motto. It's not the one about the foamless cord. (laughs) No, that one was freaking confusing. Do you, do you remember it? Oh, it was like, here, I'm going to find it. Hold on. I know the, the thing is, is clearly it was written in 1987 or something, you know, it's right. Like- because they're talking about cords and phones. Oh, wait, here, here for people who like peace and quiet, a phoneless cord. 
so a cord without a phone, which just sounds you're going to electrocute yourself. It's easy to kill yourself. That's what that was saying. But I was also like, so you carry around the shoelace. Like, what the hell? <laughs> my favorite one. So I got to say my favorite one. And I remember this, Kosha, you remember? I showed everybody. Yes, yes. Can you make sense of this? And I'll have to type it out and send it to you because the punctuation. <laughs> the greatest joy in life, comma, is to do, comma, what one says you cannot do, question mark. Question mark. At the end, what one says you cannot do? You know what? That was someone who had just learned about punctuation. It was like, I want to play with these. These are fun. Can I put a hyphen somewhere? Like the first, the first part of it thing? makes sense. The greatest joy in life, comma. Okay. Yeah. But okay, maybe. Right. But then is to do comma is to do what one says you cannot do like <laughs> that question mark at the end where I'm like, I don't get this. I wonder if I still have it. Cause I like, sure that's the one I keep like, like, just like keep around. Cause I'm like, somebody help me understand it. It's just stuck in your brain. Yeah. That one, I felt bad. I think I can't remember which one of my kids got that one, but they were just like, Oh, everybody else had like cool ones. Like you <laughs> will succeed. And then they got like, get a phoneless cord. So anyway, I didn't have a cancer situation, but I was, I was running a few years ago and I was hit by a car. Right. I was thrown forward and I hit the ground and it felt like it took two hours. And I had all of these thoughts in my head and it took two seconds to hit the ground. Right. But I remember very vividly thinking I had a, had a, had a picture of Batsy seared into my brain. And I remember thinking, what happens to my life now? I could have died. And I did say that for, I had a really hard time getting through this idea. Like I could have died. It was a, probably a month where I just cried every night. And, and I would just say to Brian, like, I could have died. I couldn't get anything else. I couldn't get myself through anything else, but I do not live my life. Like it's my last day on earth. Like I do not you know, see, I don't have the joie de vivre that I didn't have before. I don't, but I do little things I've noticed since that happened, telling people I love them constantly, even again, like through gritted teeth. I, I don't get as pissed about small things. Like there, it's like small things that I notice that I don't want to put my brain space on that when, if I don't have to, like, that's kind of the small stuff that maybe that's like the sunrise that you're talking about. It's like little things that, that have become part of my person. Like there's a really good quote. I'm trying to find it that I watched in a movie. The movie's called about time and it's about like time travel people, but like who like genetically time travel. It, it's cool. I swear. Actually, when I first <laughs> looked at it, I was like, this looks like a, like a silly rom-com, which I like rom-coms, but it looked like really out there but it ended up being really deep. And it's that these people, this family, this certain family can go back and they can live days over again within their lifetime. And so this, uh, the protagonist has to decide how he's going to live his life knowing about this. And he says, at one point he says, the truth is I now don't travel back at all, not even for the day. I just try to live every day as if I've deliberately come back to this one day to enjoy it as if it was the full final day of a, of my extraordinary, ordinary life. And I love yeah. that because that's all we can do. Right. Yeah, oh, I like that. That is really great, right? Like, I think it's like very related to the Mary Oliver quote, like, what will you do with your one wild and glorious life? Yes. 
what are you going to do here? And it's interesting because for me, my big realization has been you can't pour from an empty cup. So this whole like, you know, Kosha's heard me say it probably a hundred times. I'll sleep when I'm dead, which took on a whole nother, you know, sort of (laughs) meaning after my diagnosis, but also just sort of like, I don't have time to rest. I don't have time to chill out. I got stuff to do. What am I going to do with my one wild and glorious life? I'm going to make the biggest impact I can. But then for me, part of the realization was like, I actually have to take care of myself. I'm so taking care of my friends and my family and doing all this work for social justice and blah, 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 blah. Well, who's taking care of me? I'm the only one that can eat right. I'm the only one that can get enough sleep. I'm the only one that can get enough exercise for myself that I have to do that first, right? Which was a real, it's very anti-intuitive for me. I don't live in a place of like taking care of, like I'm not constantly paying attention to what I need. I'm almost always not aware of what I need and having to have, having to actually pay attention to it is both liberating and also like, it's like stepping into a, like, like, like when snakes shed their skin, I don't know this to be a fact, given that I've never been a snake, but (laughs) I imagine that first little bit is a little like, yeah, this is, it doesn't feel quite right to them. It's not, it's still moist and wet and it's like prickly and you're like, oh, right. And that's what it feels like. Okay. Where's the next version of me has got to do these things. Uh, but it doesn't feel quite right yet. So I'm waiting for, you know, I'm waiting for that skin to feel a little bit more normal. Right. No, I really love that. I love that too, because also it's not just about the big things for me either. It's actually also about really settling into and enjoying the ordinary things and the, the everyday things, but actually enjoying them, you know, and not just enduring them. Or, you know, the one thing I will never enjoy folding clothes. I'll just say that right here and right now. But um, you heard it here first, people. (laughs) The I am speaking community heard it here first. Emily Blinker. No scoop. (laughs) How about this? Anybody who does like it is a sociopath. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. kidding. Oh, my God. That's a book. Your villain just likes folding clothes, just loves folding clothes. <laughs> they go break into people's houses just to fold their clothes. I want that villain in my life. That's and they all. like, they, go, they break into people's houses. They, they like drug them and steal all their stuff, but they fold the clothes. <laughs> <laughs> I love well, it. I don't know. I didn't want to make it like they have to, they're not like a serial killer, right? No, they can't kill the people that would, <laughs> that wouldn't make them as enjoyable as a hero, but still, I love all yeah. of it. I love all of it. Mostly the- We're giving you gold here. I'm sorry. Right, right, right. And then over time, they learn to not be a sociopath, but then they stop liking to fold clothes. Then they stop liking to fold clothes. (laughs) And then all of their friends are like, like, okay, I like that you're not a sociopath anymore. That's cool. But you're folding my clothes and now you're not doing that anymore. And I don't know how I feel about that. Right. I love it. But I also love that this sociopath had like lots of friends, which I don't know. (laughs) I feel like that's the opposite of what, what would happen there. Isn't part of writing doing something unexpected? <laughs> yeah. But but no, I totally agree with that. Like the whole concept of like self-care and not self-care as in, I mean, I do think that it's great to like go get a massage and stuff like that, but self-care is in like actually understanding what you need, you know, and what what is of value to you. 
And being able to say those things out loud and being able to, you know what I had the hardest time with in my life was saying no, you know, like that is a skill that I had to learn as I got older and as my sunrise (laughs) kept happening, you know, but all of those things just built on top of each other. And I think the more that you practice them, something I've learned with my kids is like when they go through something hard, my first instinct is to rescue them from Mm -hmm, it, Of course, you know? But what I have seen is once they learn that they can go through that hard thing and make it through to the other side, that it actually gives them great strength and resilience. And so it's a challenge. It's a good thing for me to understand too, and to build trust in them. But we, we have to do that for ourselves as adults a lot too. Yeah. How old is your youngest, Emily? 10, 10, 11, 10. 10. So you're a few, you're both a few years out from this, but Betsy is coming home with some interpersonal situations going on on -hmm. on the playground and stuff and I actually hugged her the other day and she was going through something and I couldn't answer her question and I just hugged her and I was like being seven it starts getting hard I get it oh I love that we're in the middle with you Mm -hmm. like you you're deciding like we're always here and I I'm like oh my god that's nuance that is so new for us as a family to your point, Emily, it would be so easy to just put down a rule, quote rule, be like, that's how we can fix this problem. But no, there's a lot of nuance as you, as you grow older that they have to go through. And then they actually, kids never learn to manage their own. They never learn to self-regulate. They don't really learn how to negotiate with peers um, or, or to creatively problem solve. Yeah. I always say that's why I'm glad I have four kids because I could mess up with the first couple and then get it figured out by the end. I'm sure so. they appreciate you saying that. I love hearing that on the podcast. Well, and there's four of us too, Shale, she, me, and then we have two younger siblings. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's what happened. And we constantly bring it up with them. So, <laughs> so you might be setting them up for some future, future arguments. Oh, believe me. I, I am fully aware. Well, it's not so much the practicing so much as like just how the rules just like relaxed and relaxed and relaxed. So they weren't really a rule anymore. It's more like a loose suggestion. I mean, but also I have one and I'm 42 years old and I'm tired. So there is an element of like, I do understand the fourth one. You're like, are you going to die? Like, is this going to kill you actively kill you? No. So just go ahead and do it. It's fine. Right. I think your skills also improve. And also, you know, which things to be extremely worried about and not worried about, you know, like, and also, you know what I came to understand really, really well, that there are just phases, you know, like phases that kids go through. And I can say, all right, I remember when this kid went through this same phase and that it's, they're going to come out the other side of it. And that's okay. You know, like, like teenagers get like, uh, I haven't had a girl yet be a teenager, but boys go, th- go through a certain time where their hormones make them angry and they get angry. And I know if I'm consistent and we talk about it and talk about proper ways to deal with anger or that we get to the other side of that anger and they learn how to manage it. You know, the first time that I went through that experience, I was like, oh my goodness, I'm failing as a mother. I did all of these things, but now the third time I'm going through it, I'm like, okay, hey, bud, this is normal. You're feeling pretty angry. Guess what? That's testosterone. Mm -hmm. That is pretty normal for you to be feeling that right now at your age, you know? So let's talk about how do we deal with those things. How old is Thomas now? He's 14. About Isha's age then. 17, 16, 14, and 10, right? That's what you have. For me, yeah. Yeah, okay. I picked up on Emily's last two. We're 
our kids are both the same age. Yeah. The last two. Yeah. Yeah. Tagged in. (laughs) Yeah. I had this realization the other day that my older kid is going to be 15 in November and we'll be able to get a learner's permit to drive a car. And I had this moment of like, I'm sorry, where am I in some twilight zone episode? <laughs> like what's going on here? But the same way that that kid's moving on to high school and the other younger kids moving on to middle school. And I'm like, we moved here when the, when the younger one was going into kindergarten. And so like, that's also a bit of like a weirdness, which is like, oh, now I've had this many kids, like we're already done with elementary school. Like how did that even happen? I do this thing. It's weird with Isha. I, it is weird that they are going into high school, but I totally can track on it. I was like, okay, (laughs) but with your younger kid with Lex, I'm constantly like, isn't he going into second grade? My kid is in second grade. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not being facetious either. I'm like, seriously, like, when does he go into third grade? And she'll, she's like, three years ago. What is wrong with you? <laughs> Do you have that kind of cognitive dissonance with like your kids growing up or are you, are you pretty firmly sometimes, like teenagers? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I do like, especially seeing pictures of them just like two years ago. I'm like, oh my gosh, how did that much time go by? But at the same time, I can't imagine a time in my life that they weren't exactly who they are right now, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I think that it's a little bit of both. And I just love who my kids are becoming. Like every single day, of course we have ups and downs and really hard things that we go through, but every single day I find something where I'm like, oh my gosh, I love that you are this way. Like what a great person you are turning out to be. I do that with bats every day too. I I really do. We're like at least once a day, Brian and I will look at each other and be like, that is hilarious. Like that is part of her personality. And I just realized, you know, so for so long, you, you start by going like, oh, you get that from your dad or you get that from your mom or someone will be like, your mom was exactly like that. Or you look like your dad, whatever. And I said to her the other day, I was like, you know, people will say that that's from your mom or that's just like your dad, but there's so much that's just you. Like, I don't want you to identify with me or with dad. Like we're here. You are going to, and I go, there's a lot about me. That's really similar to Namina, who is my mom. And there's a a little bit, not as much about me. That's similar to Nanaji, but there's most of me is just me. And so that's, you know, which I think everyone in my family is like, thank God that that's not genetic. (laughs) (laughs) But at the end of the day, like, that's how I want her to see it too. I, I want to stop saying, I want people to stop saying like, oh, that you must get that from your mom. Because I'm like, no, this is you. This is you forming your own personality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love it. And I, you know, there was this moment about five years ago that I realized that my kids are going to be adults in my life longer than they've been children. Most likely if we're lucky enough <clears throat> to live to a ripe old age, you know, I'm going to know them as adults more than I knew them as the little people that they are right now. And I'm like, I want them to become adults that I want to be close to and want to be close to me. So that was kind of a mind blowing thing. And, and as I went through and I'm like, okay, I see these struggles that have to do with your age and with what you're going through currently with your peers and even just this time period and even in our family. But I can also see that like, I can't, I can wait. I mean, I don't want them to grow up too fast, but (laughs) fast, but I'm very excited to know that they're going to be adults in my life, that we will be adults at, at the same time. So 
Yeah. That's a, that's both a, it's like an exciting idea. Right. And also a little bit of a, not terrifying, but again, just like when that baby comes home day one, day zero, and you're like 18 years, that's a long time. And then, <laughs> then it's like, you wake up one morning and you're like, how did we get 16 years later? Like what happened to the time? And it feels like time just speeds up. I, I think it does. Here is my belief in that because I know you want to hear it. Um, but we're interviewing a very important author. We want to know <laughs> your thoughts exactly. on many things, including this time speed this up. It has absolutely nothing to do with anything I've ever heard be scientific ever. But um, when has that stopped you? I know exactly. <laughs> you know, Maddie is 10. My youngest is 10. What percentage of her life is one year? Okay. So like I look at our lives and I'm like, one year is just a smaller percentage of our existence than it is when they're younger. And I know that we're talking about them filling up our existence, but still, but it goes both ways. Like think about a kid who is three turning four, right? If you're like, Oh my God, Christmas is a whole year away. That's 33% of their life. They have to wait for the next Christmas. Exactly. (laughs) When you're 40, right. You're like, Oh my God, Christmas is only a year away. Like it, because that's a 40th of your existence. Well, didn't, I'm sorry. Didn't we just have Christmas? Right. 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 And it's already almost the end of April, like in the middle of April. I was like, Shulshi, we just had your birthday. Calm down. Right. And she's like, no, it really is. She she would celebrate all year if she could. So (laughs) no, that's, that feels a little overly self-important. I just need to be appropriately (laughs) self-important. There you go. Exactly. So no, but that is a real thing. The percentage and why, why things feel so fast. Like it's, it's, it's relatively fast, right? It doesn't actually speed up. And the thing is like, I, I love what you said about, you know, the, the grownups that, that they're going to be like, we're not, we're not raising children. We're raising people who are going to be like good, kind, strong, brave members of society, humans, like grownups, and that they're going to do that their own way too. And you know, we, there's very little you can do to change your child's personality. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I do think that you can do a lot of bad things to stunt a person, you know, you can make it miserable to be alive for them, but you're not going to change them. Right. Yeah. I, yeah, I think that's the thing is that we do have to be careful because we can damage our children, like, especially when they're so young when they're so young and developing everything about themselves, if they don't have that freedom, if they don't have that ability to uh, grow and expand, then there will be a restriction. You know, I just think of, I mean, you see it in nature. If you, you know, what do they say that mammals uh, grow smaller, right? If they're on an Island, mammals grow smaller. That's why you have pygmy everything. It's because they don't have all of the things they need. So they grow to their, their restricted environment. Same thing happens with fish. If you put them in a bowl or, you know, like, um, so if there is a restricted environment, then they actually aren't going to grow to their full potential. So I guess that's what our job is as parents is to give them enough boundaries that they stay safe, but also enough freedom that they can grow to their fullest potential, you know? That's, that's, that's actually quite profound. Well, thank you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) To think about, you know, just how much control parents have in both keeping kids safe and 
providing appropriate boundaries, but also knowing when to loosen those boundaries, knowing right. when to let go of what things, um, knowing when to come back, you know, come down a little harder, like, hey, that's really not okay, versus this is a phase, let's talk through how you might deal with these issues, but like, I don't need to like go off and like to have a like big blowout with you because you yelled at me right. about something as opposed to like, no, you can't just take the car without talking to me. Like there's, and, and I think when I use those two examples, obviously one is a big deal and one is not that big of a deal, but I think for some people it's all a big deal. Right. I, you know, I am definitely not a perfect parent at all. Like I know that every single day and I look and know that for sure. But what I do think I ask my kids to give me patience with is that like, I, I am very upfront with them about how I'm not perfect, you know? And I think that's a big thing is I think sometimes when those big reactions happen over even small things, it's because we're taking them personally. It goes back to ego again, like our lives as humans, we just spend so much of it trying to protect our ego. I have found that it helps me a lot as a parent being able to say, hey, I am not perfect. I don't actually know all of those answers, but you know what? We're going to find out. We're going to figure it out. You know, uh, I love um, attachment theory when it comes to, you know, relationships and things like that. And it is really coming to this place of finding, you know, a secure attachment with somebody, which doesn't necessarily mean that you are with them all of the time are or anything attached. like that. Right. right. And that you are attached. It's just that you know that they are there and, you know, and that you are safe with them. So um, uh, there was something that was from that whole theory that I wanted to share with you guys, but now I can't remember. I was going to say so much of that shows up in a person's relationships through their lives. Right. And it's like parents are the first everything of everything. Right. Um, but then how, you know, if you don't have a secure attachment, when you're young that carries through so much of your life. And then you end up unconsciously making choices that could be to your detriment because you're looking for something. Oh, absolutely. Right. Or you're thinking about your, you're mimicking that relationship because that feels normal. Right. That is absolutely it. And it's, you know, I once had it explained to me where um, a lion growing up in um, a zoo, and you think that the fake grass and the plastic grass and all of those things, you think those are real. You have absolutely no idea what the actual savanna would be like. And so uh, it's just because you grow up in those situations and with, with those limitations. And sometimes you might not even know what to do with a whole freaking savanna, you know? Have you seen the movie Madagascar? They don't know. <laughs> they don't even know. They don't know. But, but I do love, I, I mean, and that's why when we say like they are, the kids are who they are, but we do still have an incredibly important job to foster who they are and to, to give them enough, enough structure and space without suffocating them. But that is the question is like, how do we know what is what? So, yeah. Yeah. We're all, we're all works in progress, right? We're all evolving actually to come back to that we started talking about your writing and, and now just who you are as a mom and a, you know, you're doing improv and all this stuff. How has your writing evolved? Like in the beginning, you know, with wreckage, you were married and Mm -hmm. you had three kids, but they were much younger. 
right? I remember your wreckage um, launch party. I had a six month old, right? So that was, we're looking at like seven years ago. Things that things have grown for you. You're no longer married. You are um, happily divorced and have published multiple books. Right. And like you're five books in, you have another book coming out. Um, how has your writing evolved? Yeah. So I had all of my kids when wreckage came out. Um, and I'm, I'm six books in, I'm, I'm right on my seven. Oh, that's right. Um, but no, no, that's okay. I, I think that my writing has evolved as I've evolved. I don't know. I just feel like, um, but also part of it is, is that writing isn't just a spiritual experience, you know, like you see that a lot in, in movies and media that it's just like, sit down and let the muse come to you. It's also a business you know? And so a lot of decisions, not a lot, but some decisions have to be made with that in mind as well. Like, what is my brand? What is my genre? Like what, what is working in the market? What is not working in the market? That doesn't mean the market completely dictates what I write, but I definitely have to at least nod at the market or else like, like, this Mm -hmm. is my career. This is my job, you know? Yeah. So, um, so it has, but I think my actual, what I write about has um, changed over time to be, well, first of all, I, I knew nothing about writing when I wrote Wreckage, nothing. Like I literally, this is embarrassing to admit, I had to look up how to even do quotes like for dialogue. I didn't even know. I didn't know the comma went inside the quotes. I wrote that whole book not knowing any of that kind of stuff. Like I still, I wrote it. That's why you have an editor. Yeah, but you can't like, so after you write a book, it needs to be in its best shape before you try and sell it, you know? So like I had to learn so many things on the fly. So, so I don't know, it's, it's evolved over time to become um, a somewhat simpler process, like, cause I understand what I'm doing, but um, also, I don't know, it's more complicated because it's also like something that is completely my career. So I have multiple things that I'm working on. So I'll have a passion project. That's a little bit more like, this is the thing that I just want to write. I remember you called it, didn't you call it like your side piece or you called it like your- It's my affair book. <laughs> yeah, your affair book. Right, right, right. It's the one that I'm like sitting there dreaming about as I'm writing this book that is <laughs> bills. <laughs> I'm like, hey there, handsome. How you doing over there? Well, I'll be honest, like I've, I've toyed with the idea of writing a book and that is exactly the thing where I was like, could I finish this? Because I know one thing I do know about myself, I'm an 80% is good enough person, right? So I get, I move, it's just, as my husband calls it, you're really good at moving the big rocks. You know, I think for a lot of things in life, that's a very healthy way to be. I always talk about how, like, I I would love to be mediocre in like a million different things. Like that would make me so happy. I think my life would be very, very happy if I was just mediocre at most. And I talk about like good enough parenting, right? And and that's like one of the healthiest way of being a parent. Yes, that is exactly what I was bringing up with the attachment thing. You just said it. Is that, yeah, as long as you're a good enough parent, that's, that's what you gotta be. So, so I think that's true with a lot of things, but I, I, I think it was good for me to learn that I needed to push through to this next level, but even that wasn't finished, you know, like I did three years of work. I did like six months of editing and learning. And then once it got picked up, I had to do three more rounds of editing on it, you know? And it is a lot and it does feel a little like painful at times, but I also feel like 
as writers, we're super lucky because we get to get it to that polished point. We get to do that work all ahead of time so that when people pick up our book and they read it, they're like, wow, this is so great. And everybody thinks this was the miracle that you just sat down and wrote in one weekend when you were inspired. Right, right. Yeah, I, I can absolutely like that. I feel that, although I haven't sat down to write a book um, because I, because of that very thing, which is like, if I have to do three edits after I've done a bunch of additional edits, I'm going to hate the thing that I'm working on. Um, and then I don't will ever never. It's how will I want to finish it? How has the, how has your voice changed? Cause I can definitely tell from reading your books or listening to them. I'm, I listen to all my books on audio, but your first book, it was really interesting. Cause I, could if I close my eyes, I could see you telling me that story as, as seniors in high school. Like it was your voice as the Emily that I knew. <laughs> and then it's grown and it's still your voice, but it's now like the Emily that I know, right? Like it's it's definitely your it's changed, but I can't put it into words to make it make sense to anybody else but me. No. And I felt it like, it's definitely a thing. I think there's just the first book definitely was like, it's almost an embarrassment. It's a little embarrassing how much it was like I was back then, especially some of the plot points that I remember some people would be like, I don't understand why this character is so obsessed, upset about this, you know, mm. it was just the value system I was coming from at the time. And, you know, like I do look at some of the, the things that, that, that character was incredible incredibly upset about. And I'm like, wow, I must've been really, uh, really hung up on those things as well. You know, I was definitely coming from a place of someone who had just very recently almost dipped out of their family's life because that's what wreckage is about. You know, it's about this, these two people who end up on a, on an Island away from their family for several years. And, you know, then them coming back and being like, no, wait, I'm still alive, you know, and trying to, to see where they fit back into that real world. And so I do look at that and I understand where that came from. When I'm gone is about someone who died of cancer and then wrote letters, which I can't believe I wrote that book because I still to this day avoid movies about cancer. So those, those came from my life experiences more so. I think working fire had a lot of undertones from the difficulties in my marriage. Um, but I do think as time has gone on that it's just becoming my characters are becoming less of my uh, unmet emotional mm -hmm. damage and needs and more so they're becoming that they, they're all, I think the emotion will always be fed from my well of actual life experiences because that's just how people write, you know, and that's how you can understand the emotions of the characters. But I think that they're more themselves than they are, you know, my experiences at this point, you know, and, and honestly, nobody wants to read me. Every book is around 80,000 words. Mm -hmm. So, and I've written those books eight, six times over and I'm on to my seventh. Nobody wants to read that many words. 560,000 words about you. Shut your freaking mouth. That's what it was. I did the math. Did math like this. You didn't put the math in your book. You said it. So I just did it. For I you. just said it. So you did it for me. See, I do have math in my book. It's not that easy. <laughs> That's a lot of words, but you guys. It is a lot of words. Yeah. Nobody wants to sit there and just hear my point of view and my words and my feelings, experiences, and emotions. So 
one that it seems like the the it's tr- not a trick right that makes it sound like it's some sort of like smoke and mirrors bs but the work of the writer is to take your own experiences and depersonalize them just enough so that they become universal right amen that exactly. some that someone who's nothing like you could read your book and go, oh, I get this. I feel exactly. it. I've experienced, right? Like, I know what this would be like. Um, but I can totally see the point too, which is like, you can't also just write devoid of your own experience because then it's wooden. Then it's like a manual, right? It becomes very technical. Or it's not real. Like, like okay, so <laughs> this is a random topic, but I'm watching Big Love right now, which I've never seen before. Really? So- um, yeah, so, you know, I've, my, I grew up, I, well, I mean, not even grew up. I've lived my whole life Mormon, right? And I've never seen that show because it's about polygamists and about Utah and stuff. But I decided to watch it recently with my boyfriend and we were watching it. And there were so many things that they get 90 or 80% right about that culture, but not all the way there that makes it ring so hollow for me. Mm. And I'm like, I don't think that they fully understand. I could tell it was written by somebody who was trying to empathize with people of that faith, but not actually had experienced it, you know, and there is some heart missing from it because of that. You know, that's why own voices is so important in writing right now, you know, like, that's why you, we have to be careful as writers about who we are using as our point of view characters. Like I should not be writing uh, from the point of view of somebody who is from the LGBTQ community because I am not. Right. 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 Exactly. So um, because right now those voices need to be held by the people who have had those experiences. Now that doesn't mean I shouldn't have characters from different backgrounds because that would mean my books would just be all, you know, middle-class white people honestly who wants to read that we have enough of those (laughs) we have plenty of those guys and it's not what my life even looks like you know my life doesn't even look like that so but there has to still be you know that you still have to have a connection like it only rings true if you have some kind of connection full connection to those those experiences and those emotions and though like working fire is about a girl who a woman who is a emt and is called to a scene where her sister was and her brother-in-law were shot and left for dead. And she's the responding EMT. And I've never experienced that, obviously, but I can tap into the emotions of somebody who like, and, and then take on those emotions of what that person may have felt. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to ask you our penultimate question. I'm going to reference another podcast host, Dak Shepard, who always talks about like when he sits down to write, he's like, it's a discipline for him. It's like, no, there's no like getting moved by the, it's not like getting moved by the spirit. And then it's just going to, you know, like you said, the muse is just going to flow out of your fingers. Like sometimes often, in fact, he says, the point is to just sit down and write something for a certain amount of time. Like you're just gonna sit there for 45 minutes and you're gonna write something and it could be absolute garbage. But but the point is to write because the more you write, the more you write well. And like the more you get, you know, the more everything starts to come together. I'm not gonna ask you about his advice, but what I am <laughs> gonna ask you about, what would you say to someone who is either in your position now and is like, what do, 
could I do that? Or who was in your position before this a little bit like, I don't know that I want to go public with that. Like what advice would you give to someone who is you now or was you then? It's really just do it. So um, put words on a page. Um, a lot of people start a manuscript and don't finish it. A large, a large amount of people do. So just finishing a manuscript is a huge accomplishment, you know, and you're going to learn so much about yourself and about being a writer just by writing, you know? So like, that's the only thing, like if I had just said that I wanted to write a manuscript and never done it, then this surprise, uh, awesome career that I'm in never could have happened, you know? So really, once again, like it's time, it is discipline. I think demystifying is huge. I love that statement of like, sometimes it's just sitting down and just writing and you might delete all of that later, but it's just, just doing it. And I think that is the thing because we tell people that if you are doing what you love for a living, you'll never work a day in your life. I think that is such a lie. You're going to work so much harder if you love what you're doing. And so I love writing. I also hate writing. And I think you have to be able to accept that you're going to do both. I love being a mom. Also, sometimes being a mom is the freaking hardest job ever. That doesn't mean that I shouldn't be a parent, you know, like, I think that's the biggest thing is just do it, do it anyway, I guess would be the theme of this podcast is just, uh, just do it anyway. Yeah. That's great. I advice. like it. That's great advice for us all. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <Kosha>. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, I mean, and you know, I, he, Dak Shepard has said this, and I think you told me something really similar is like, sometimes you have to give yourself permission to just write shit. Right. Anne Lamont says that she has a whole chapter in bird by bird where it's called um, shitty first drafts and so good. I give that to anybody that I start working with who is writing because that is what you have to do. And I think it works in life too. If you give yourself permission, it's what we talked about at the beginning of this. If you give yourself permission to know that you're going to fail occasionally, it makes it so much easier to be successful. So, because if you're just sitting back, holding yourself together, so afraid of that failure, then you are never going to succeed at anything ever, ever. That is absolutely predetermined. You will never succeed. So just open yourself up to failure. It would be amazing if someone just started listening to the podcast right then. When Emily, <laughs> when Emily said, you will never succeed. You never. <laughs> that's what they heard. That's going to be the soundbite. That's going to be the soundbite. Yeah, on that's right. PMZ tomorrow. <laughs> yay i am speaking cross that out you will not succeed you will never succeed <laughs> we're going in a different direction for our next season <laughs> our next season is about how people should sit down and shut up so, <laughs> okay so our last thing that we always talk about is the idea of family act uh, can you, ha do you have any, ex uh, examples of family act in your own life with your boyfriend, with your improv troupe, with your family and kids, what are like weird things, like invented words and phrases or things that have taken on a meaning? Tons. Uh, we probably do it in my, a lot in my home, especially. So Jabra Tama is how I call my kids. Cause it's Johnny Brandon, Thomas, Maddie. <laughs> So if I need all come instead of saying all their names, I just say Jabratama. That's a that's good that's, because you're yeah. saving a lot of time. Exactly. And then also in a store, and I swear to you, this works to this day. 
absolutely, if I go, all of my kids will come to me. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yep. It's a whistle. It's like, I've, I've said, it's like, I'm the, they're the Von Trapp family singers, yeah. you know, uh, <laughs> Captain Von Trapp is like, has a whistle. That's all I have to do. M- Maddie says that it's me going bleaker, bleaker, but it's not, it's just an easy whistle. If that's how, if that's how it's being perceived, fantastic. Exactly. I know somebody exactly. who, um, who does the, it's like, does a Chewbacca, like, or I can't even do it, but does like a Chewbacca sound. I'm going to leave that in because that was the worst Chewbacca impersonation <laughs> ever. And then his son will do it too. And so they know where they are in the store. It works. It works. I will watch them. I will be like, okay, I see them over there. I'm going to do the whistle and see what happens. And they all just are like little prairie dogs. They're like, it's mom. we have to go. Oh, that that's cool. Awesome. My kids know the point and snap. Oh yeah. <laughs> and they, they, they hear me snap and they're like, like, I can be, I can be yelling. And as soon as I point a snap, they're like, Oh, what, what's happening? Like, that's so funny. Well, I use, I use Anushka's full, I use Batsy's full name all the time. I'll go like Anushka Grace Carstens. And someone the other day was like, Ooh, she used your full name. I was like, Oh no, no. If I need, I actually go low and slow and I shorten everything. I'll go, I'll go Anu. And then she like knows that like she needs to fall into line. There is nothing more scary to a child than an adult that is calm and (laughs) when you have done something that requires yelling, right? Because you know, that person has gotten past their like (laughs) irrational stage to being like, they might torture me. Like, I don't, because they have moved past, they're actually thinking about this now, right? They're not just emotional, like all over the place. They're calm and collected. This could be a real problem. That's really funny. They, they've already premeditated that murder. There's a line in uh, The Good Place. He goes, you're mad at me. And she goes, no, I'm just disappointed. And he goes, well, everyone knows that's worse. That's worse, yeah. <laughs> That's great. That's true. Which is totally true. Yeah. So you have been the loveliest. I love spending any amount of time with you that I can. Me too. You guys are delightful. I cannot wait. When is, tell us about your next book. Yeah. As much as you can. Uh, It doesn't come out until next year. So, and I haven't made the official announcement. Okay. But uh, it will be coming soon. It's official. The deal is official. I just haven't made the announcement yet. So stay tuned. Announcement on the way. Is it about a podcasting Indian sister duo? No, because remember, I can't write that point of view. So you'll have to write that. Oh, okay. No, but you would be like the jealous friend who like. The jealous white person. Wants to kill one of them. To, I don't know. I'm making up a story as I go. Okay. F- first of all, let's just acknowledge that Kosha has a great imagination. Doesn't work that well on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> Math skills, however, Math, boom, boom, on boom, the spot. But <laughs> when put on, when put on the spot to make up a story, it really does not that work that, that well. That, that, yeah, that was bad. <laughs> So don't use that. Okay. This story <laughs> is a dual timeline from 
um, World War II and present day. And I will say it has like Hollywood royalty in it and also talks about um, the Italian POW camps in the United States. Oh my goodness. So, oh, wow. Okay, so I didn't even know there were Italian POW camps. Yeah, yeah, there are Italians and Germans were kept in POW camps um, in the United States. There were like, um, uh, there were 150,000 um, POWs here. So, and tell us, you. tell us the names of your books in order of um, publication. That, first of all, did I say 150, 150,000? You said 150,000. Oh, I did. Okay, yeah. good. Like 150, you're like, wow, that that's like <laughs> they can fit into building. one church. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so the titles of my books are um, Wreckage, When I'm Gone, uh, Working Fire, Waiting Room. Um, oh my gosh, what's left unsaid? I'm missing one. No, that's the last one, right? That's no, right. no, no, Waiting Room, um, What It Seems what's left unsaid they all start with w which gets which gets very very confusing oh yeah that would be very difficult. was that in order i mean it was until i messed it up at the end but <laughs> <laughs> the rest of it was in order so wreckage when i'm gone working fire the waiting room what it seems what's left unsaid there you go i knew that one came out last so is, is your is your next book gonna have a w title i have a title that i want for it um i want it to be when we were enemies so we so are you doing this W thing on purpose now? It's kind of something my my publisher has encouraged. Um, Wreckage was called Before the Sun, which is actually now the name of my company. So is Before the Sun. So because that was my first title I ever came up with. Uh, when I'm Gone was called Letters from the Dirt. Working Fire was called Hollow Point. The Waiting Room, I think, was always The Waiting Room. What It Seems was The Perfect Family. And What's Left Unsaid was just called Evelyn's Story. So they all had different titles. And I would say that your job is in your skill, your talent is to write the book and someone else's job and skill and talent is to figure out how it's best marketed. Best marketed. Exactly. So how do you, what do you, what can you change without changing too much? Right. Yeah. And that's why this one, I'm like, I'm just going to start off with a W title. So at least <laughs> what are you going to do with that? Maybe that's what the title should be. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with that? <laughs> I'm helpful sometimes. <laughs> what are you going to do with that? We hope you come back. And when your book is ready to launch, we'd yeah. love for you to come back as part of your book tour. And um, we just love you. And I love you so much. And thank you for spending a couple hours with us. Yeah, it was oh, well, lovely. Thank you. And Salushi, thank you for your, thank you. Happy birthday. Thank you for your birthday. <laughs> You're welcome for my birthday. Uh, I know I'm a gift to the world. No, I kid. I, I only slightly kid. The 52% kidding and the rest yeah. real. But yeah. <laughs> thank you for the birthday wishes. Yeah, once I finally got them. Thank you for the birthday <laughs> you're welcome always happy to be of service <laughs> i love you guys love, love you, you too Mwah. bye All right. bye bye